Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Hello, and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen, and today we're going to be talking about a right that most Americans, and certainly lawyers, are familiar with, the right to the assistance of counsel. Few know more about this topic than our guest today, Seymour James, the former attorney in charge of the Legal Aid Society, America's largest public defender institution, and the former president of the New York State Bar. Welcome, Mr. James. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today we're talking about the right of the poor to have legal counsel. Now, most people are familiar with this through the Miranda warning. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be appointed to you by the state. Now, where does this right come from? That right comes from the United States Constitution. Uh, the Sixth Amendment uh, uh, guarantees the right to counsel in criminal proceedings. And the, the Gideon versus Wainwright decision uh, held that a person was charged with a felony uh, is entitled to have counsel represent them if they can't afford to pay a lawyer. Subsequently, with a couple of other decisions, established that right for a juvenile and a juvenile delinquency proceeding, as well as for a person who's charged with a misdemeanor or, or other offense where they're going to be subject to imprisonment. What you described was a right to assistance of counsel for poor, uh, but in the day-to-day practice, are these people being adequately protected? Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. When the Supreme Court held in those cases that there was a right to counsel, the feeling was that this would produce a system which was fair and just for those who were poor. Uh, Unfortunately, that has not been the case. In the federal system, in the federal courts, uh, the right to counsel is generally satisfied. However, in the state courts, where the vast majority of criminal proceedings are, are, are handled, the right to counsel is sort of an empty promise, unfortunately. And the problem, the greatest problem, is the lack of funding uh, for indigent defense providers. So the right might be there, but there's just not enough money to make sure that these uh, poor individuals get the protection that they're constitutionally entitled to. Right, exactly. And in fact, what happens is that people have attorneys who have uh, unbelievably huge caseloads. What kind of caseloads are we talking about? We're, We're talking about, in some instances, 500 felonies during the course of a year. So people are handling more than, more than 100 felonies at a given time. We're also talking about situations where people are held in jail waiting to meet an attorney so that they're in jail for weeks, sometimes months. And, and in, even in some instances, they're actually held in jail uh, longer than they would have been sentenced if they pled guilty or been tried and convicted and then sentenced. You, you also have uh, situations where p- people are unable to, to see uh, their attorneys because the attorneys are so busy. Attorneys are not able to provide the effective assistance of counsel uh, to which their in- clients are entitled because of the fact that they have such large caseloads. Perhaps you can provide an example of a case of indigent defense where the standard and the aspiration of, def- of a right to defense was not met. Well, I mean, th- these examples take place every day. For instance, you're assigned an attorney. That attorney uh, is to meet with a client because of the other responsibilities that attorney has, other cases, and many cli- the volume of, of clients that they're forced to represent, they don't have time to meet with the client, to really discuss the case with the client. When they initially meet them, it's for a very abbreviated period, so they really don't, don't, any depth, don't do any depth about the case. 
They don't spend time finding out about the client's background and the details of the, of the matter uh, in that initial meeting. As the case progresses, the uh, attorney does not have time to do adequate legal research, doesn't have time to inter interview uh, witnesses, does not conduct investigations in many instances because they don't have the staff to conduct investigations and they don't have the time themselves. Many times they, when the case appears in court, the attorney is unable to meet with the client because they're covering other cases so they don't get there in time. Those who are incarcerated come to court and actually don't see their lawyer. They go back to the, the jail without having seen their attorney because the attorney wasn't able to, to be in that, in that courtroom. You mentioned earlier how there's a discrepancy in the federal courts versus the state courts. How are the states falling short of what the federal courts are providing? Because in, in the federal courts, there's sufficient funding to provide adequate counsel. So uh, is the question simply a matter of funding? I think that's the primary problem. There is inadequate funding uh, for indigent defense throughout the country. I mean, there are other issues. There are standards which need to be, uh, uh, there needs to be oversight and make sure that people are supervised properly. But the biggest problem with indigent defense in, in the United States is, is the lack of funding. So in your personal experience, what types of changes need to be made and what type of changes are being made? Well, there are some jurisdictions have established uh, caseload limits. Um, in fact, in New York City, um, there is currently in place a law uh, which was passed by the state uh, requiring that uh, <clears throat> public defenders not handle more than 400 cases, well, 400 misdemeanors per year, or 150 felonies. And if it's a mixed caseload, then the felonies count as 2.67 uh, misdemeanors. That caseload, although I'm not certain that that's really a low enough number, it's, 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 a, it's a number which has been of great assistance to our lawyers. It seems like if you, lo if you lower the case numbers, mm -hmm. then basically that means you need more attorneys. Yeah, right. Are there provisions in the law that enable that to take place? The statute, when it was passed, placed in the judiciary budget uh, the responsibility for funding uh, the additional staff that was necessary to reduce the caseloads. And it was to be phased in over four years in New York. There are some attorneys that are seeing astronomical caseloads, 500 plus felonies in a year, and how New York State and others are attempting to address that by creating caseload limits. But what's the constitutional limit on this? Is an attorney with such a caseload still providing effective assistance? It's gonna depend on the, on the state, unfortunately, um, because they look at the case individually and they'll look at the, the practice uh, individually. Uh, in my view, um, I think no attorney who's handling 500 cases in the course of a year can be providing effective assistance to all their clients because it just doesn't, there are only so many, there are only so many hours in a day. Um, and you, you cannot interview all your clients adequately, you can't investigate, you can't speak to witnesses, you can't do the legal research, uh, you can't uh, draft the motions, you can't do the sentencing advocacy that's necessary on that many cases effectively. So what happens is that the lawyers are they're triaging and they're trying to figure out which case needs the most attention. And unfortunately, if you're not in that top group, then you're not getting the best representation and you're not getting a representation to which you're entitled. When attorneys have excessively high caseloads, they're really unable to provide uh, their clients with effective representation. Because what happens is they don't have enough time to devote to each individual. Uh, when an attorney has a criminal defense case, uh, their responsibility is to interview the client at length to determine the client's background and also determine the facts of the case, uh, interview witnesses 
uh, investigate the case, find out if what the what the scene looked like, uh, do motions on the case. If there's uh, evidence which may have been seized illegally, or if the identification didn't take place uh, appropriately, which can be incredibly time consuming. It is very time consuming. There are legal issues that which arise, um, which require legal research. Um, the attorneys don't have time to, to engage in the legal research because it's, as I was saying earlier, they're engaged in a, a triage. So they're just trying to do as, as much as they can uh, on as many cases as they can. And they really can't focus and, and delve into the, the, the case in a manner which really enables the client to get the, the best possible representation. So the lawyers are having to make snap decisions that may be overlooking uh, what would be considered due diligence or appropriate attention uh, normally by the court. Yeah, they're compelled to do that because of the fact that they have so many cases. I mean, they're, they're, they're conscientious, dedicated lawyers who are prevented from actually providing effective assistance because of the fact that they have such heavy caseloads. And the states uh, or, or counties have not funded them adequately. One solution to this problem we discussed was more money, more funding for additional lawyers. But are there other solutions? Are there ways to reduce the number of cases before they even get to court? Yes, there could be diversion programs uh, which exist in, in some jurisdictions. So for minor offenses, they actually don't come to court. What's a diversion program? You go to um, either a mediation program or if you have a, a, a mental health or drug problem, uh, you go to a treatment program. Uh, and the, the case is not calendared in, in, in the courts. And once you've completed your treatment, uh, then you would, the case would not, be, would not be prosecuted. So they actually don't bring them into the court. Uh, another area that, that could provide a great deal of relief for the courts is decriminalization of a lot of offenses. A lot of minor charges, which could be civil in nature as opposed to criminal. In 2011, there were, I think, approximately 660,000 marijuana possession of marijuana arrests. 660,000 possession of marijuana marijuana, uh, cases in the United States. Making a civil proceeding would relieve a lot of the burden on the courts. Disorderly conduct. Uh, There are states where traffic offenses are in the criminal courts. Um, Removing those, driving with a suspended license, uh, could alleviate some of the, the burden on the courts. Some people would argue uh, decriminalizing these type of events is just allowing for people to engage in more criminal behavior. You're talking about a civil fine. We're not, we're not talking about letting the person just do as they please. Uh, they're going to be, there'll be a civil fine. Um, and the money that we're spending on the criminal courts uh, for prosecutors, uh, for court personnel, for judges, and for defense attorneys would be much better spent uh, in, o- in other areas. Those people who have drug problems, they, we could provide them with assistance uh, and treatment. And all the studies show that treatment is far more effective than incarceration for curing uh, addiction. So a controversial program uh, here in New York City that's led to uh, a number of arrests is New York City's Stop and Frisk program. What is that program? That program was uh, initiated under uh, Commissioner Kelly. And what the police were doing is you know, if they have reasonable suspicion to stop someone, they may question them and, and search them if, they, if there's probable cause. But what was happening routinely was that the police were stopping individuals, mostly young people of color, and searching them, and then charging them with offense. Oftentimes, they had they may have had some marijuana on them, and they would charge them with marijuana. And that was one of the reasons why there were fifty thousand uh, 
misdemeanor arrests in, in 2011 for marijuana. And in fact, in New York State, if you have the marijuana in your pocket, it's only a violation if it's below a certain, uh, certain weight. However, they would tell young people to take the, whatever they had in their pockets out, and then they would charge them as, as having it exposed. So that, that would be the misdemeanor. Wait, so if it's in your pocket, it's a lower offense. The police would ask you to take it out of your pocket and then charge you with a higher offense? That's exactly what they were doing. That does not seem uh, fair. It isn't. And actually, the Legal Aid Society brought suit uh, against, the, uh, against the police department uh, on, that, on those grounds. They discontinued the practice uh, under Commissioner Kelly. So actually, the marijuana was started going down under, under uh, Commissioner Kelly. And Commissioner Kelly was the previous police commissioner? The previous police commissioner. Um, and we don't, we, that trend has continued under the, the current uh, police commissioner, uh, Bratton. However, uh, Commissioner Bratton is a strong proponent of, I guess, the broken windows theory. The broken windows theory is generally that when a neighborhood starts to experience some minor crimes, people feel more comfortable committing other minor crimes, and those can escalate. That's essentially what it is. But what, what we're finding is, you know, some of the offenses for which people are being arrested on the subways, you know, walking between the cars. Now, there is a sign that says you shouldn't walk between the cars, but do we really need to put those people into the criminal justice system. We're arresting people, keeping them overnight in jail, and bringing them to court. You could give them a summons, or you could give them an appearance ticket. P people who have their feet up on the, on the seat are being charged with occupying two seats. That's a some, crime? It's an offense under the administrative code. And they're not giving them summonses. They're arresting them and bringing them to court. Um, and most of the time, this is taking place in off hours. So they're not depriving anyone of a seat. We're talking about situations where the, the train is relatively empty. The car is relatively empty, and, and people, they put their feet up on, on the seat. So this is someone coming home late at night, perhaps uh, after a shift or after a night out, right. empty car, mm -hmm. and still being charged right. with a, a the violation. Sometimes people are charged with blocking a turnstile. What, what happens is they don't have money to get on a train. They, standing by, they stand by the turnstile, and they ask another person who's either coming out of the subway or going into the subway if they would swipe them in, and they'll arrest people for for these uh, minor infractions. So the stop and frisk policy is one that was getting a lot of attention in the media here in New York and throughout the country. Mm -hmm. Currently, what's the state of the policy? As I understand it, they're observing the law, so they're only stopping people uh, when there's reasonable suspicion. That uh, Commissioner Bratton said that that was how it's going to be his policy. Stop and frisk is a, an, an effective law enforcement tool if they have reasonable suspicion to stop on someone. And uh, his contention is that that's the only situation where they're now uh, engaging in stop and frisk legally, whereas before there were lots of illegal stop and frisks. So we talked about how attorneys are limited just based on the amount of caseload versus the number of hours in the day, but there are other limitations. There are several other limitations. Uh, one is you need investigative, investigative staff. Lots of defenders don't have investigators, so despite the fact that the attorneys are overburdened, they don't have staff to actually go out and look for witnesses and interview witnesses and, and, and and find, find evidence that would be, support the defense. They, do, they don't have social workers who can actually assist in, in identifying problems that the clients have. In, in the United States, there are estimates 40 to 60% of the people charged in criminal courts have some sort of mental health issue. And those mental health issues could then be used, if not as a defense, but as a mitigating as factor. A, absolutely, they could be used as a mitigating factor. And oftentimes, if it's, if it's uh, determined that a person has a mental health issue, you can get a program 
uh, to, to provide assistance to that individual, and the core will be more lenient in, in how they treat the individual. There's no money for experts. And these, are, these would be like doctors or scientists who might doctors be able to scientists. do ballistic yeah. tests. The prosecution has the benefit of the, the labs, uh, which are government-funded, so their experts are provided by the, the labs. The psychiatrists are provided by the, <clears throat> by the government. The defense has to have equal access to those, those resources, and, and, and they don't. Um, so what happens is there's an imbalance. The funding for the prosecutors far exceeds that of the defense. The prosecutors have lower caseloads than, than the, the, the public defenders. Is that because there's generally uh, more of a priority in the state to prosecute criminals than it is to defend potential suspects? People who are charged with crimes are, are poor and people of color. Uh, they really don't have a lobby group supporting them. Everybody wants to be tough on crime. And what they do is they fund prosecution offices, they fund the police uh, at, at high levels, and only a pittance, if anything, is provided to the defense to compensate uh, or to counter what, what the uh, prosecutors are getting. There are grants that come from the federal government. Uh, oftentimes those grants are tied to increased punishments because they want to be tough on crime. So when we're talking about the majority of criminal cases, they're in the states. So is it going to be left to the states, state by state, to decide how they want to represent the poor? You know, the, the Supreme Court decisions really are it's an unfunded mandate to the states. They require the states to provide representation uh, to individuals who can't afford attorneys. And each state in its own uh, wisdom has determined how to do it. Some do it on a statewide basis, some do it on a county basis. But the funding is, is basically inadequate throughout most of the country. So does that mean there's a large discrepancy between states or even between counties on how much money is being allocated? A absolutely. Some states fund their defender organizations and their defense systems uh, at, at a much higher level. There's a mixed representation. You may have a public defender in some counties. Uh, you may have a private legal aid bureau, uh, much like our organization, which contracts with a city or a county to provide representation. Or you may have private attorneys who are as assigned counsel or are paid an hourly rate to provide representation. But no matter what system is used, the funding is really not adequate throughout most of the country uh, to provide enough attorneys to, to give effective representation. So would you favor a national organization to provide public defender services? Well, I think in this budget climate, it's going to be very difficult to get the federal government to assume responsibility for energy defense throughout the country. But there, the federal government should uh, provide some assistance in that area. And I think uh, there ought to be funds available to supplement what the states are providing. There, there ought to be an, uh, a federal uh, agency which actually oversees indigent defense and provides assistance uh, to the states uh, and, and local and tribal and territorial governments uh, to ensure that they are providing the constitutionally mandated service that uh, the people charged with uh, criminal offenses who can't pay for attorneys are entitled to. And that just doesn't exist at this time. There's really no national focus on indigent defense. To play the devil's advocate, uh, many people will say, look, we don't have enough money for roads. We don't have enough money for schools. Why should we be throwing money uh, to give criminals an extra attorney? Well, I think one of the foundations of this country was equal justice. And equal justice requires that everybody who's in court receive a fair shot. 
And if people are poor and they're charged with a crime, they cannot get equal justice unless they have adequate representation. Okay, let's take a quick pause from this interview with Seymour James. We will give a quick code for those earning MC Lee credit. Those numbers are 061016. Again, that's 061016. And now back to the interview. And without attorneys, without investigators, without experts when necessary, without social workers and other support staff, these individuals are not gonna receive effective representation. And in fact, what happens is many people will be convicted who are not actually guilty. So we've talked a bit about the bare minimums, uh, making sure that the attorney at least has some time to do the due diligence. But are there ways to, to go above and beyond? Are there ways to reform the way public defenders work and make the practice more efficient and more beneficial. I think what, whether you call it community defense or comprehensive defense, what, what needs to be done is that you need to look at the individual and the whole individual and, and deal with some of the issues that they have. The vast majority of, of people who are represented by uh, public defenders are, are poor, uh, they have social issues which need to be addressed, which in many instances are, are the basis for them being involved in the criminal justice system. They're, some of them are homeless, they have drug or alcohol problems, and without addressing those problems, there's a, almost a certainty that they'll be coming back into the criminal justice system. So what needs to be done is when those individuals are brought to court, like the Legal Aid Society, many organizations have social workers. Uh, we've, I guess, pioneered the use of social workers in criminal defense, and we've had them I guess since, uh, I think since 1971. If you look at what the problems that the client is confronting, you work with that client, get them into treatment for the problems. Uh, if they have an alcohol problem, you get them into an alcohol treatment program. If they have a drug abuse problem, you get them into a, a drug program. Uh, if they're homeless, if you can refer them to an agency which can provide them with uh, assistance to get them housing, you then put them in a better position not to be become a recidivist and they don't well, less likely to, to return to the, the court. There are strong critics of public defenders. There are people who will say, why do these, you know, if you're innocent, you should be able to speak for yourself. How do you address that issue? How do you respond to those critics? Well, I can go back to the Gideon case. That individual handled the matter himself. He was convicted. Uh, when the Supreme Court set that verdict aside and sent it back for trial, he had an attorney. That attorney investigated the case. He learned uh, information about the witness uh, and what that witness had observed. And through his cross-examination at the trial, he was able to show that the witness was not uh, accurate in her depiction of what had occurred. And Mr. Gideon was, was acquitted. Now, without the attorney, he had been convicted, and he would have been convicted again uh, without an attorney. You need a, a, an individual who is skilled in the law to counter the prosecution. The, the prosecutors are attorneys. They're presenting the evidence. An individual who, a layperson, is not going to be in a position uh, to, to counter arguments that they make or to examine witnesses or know what's necessary uh, in order to argue against the prosecutor. So this basically goes back to the, to the United States being an adversarial system. You have the prosecutor on one side and the defendant needs counsel on his side as well. Our adversarial system uh, believes that if you have uh, advocates on both sides, 
and a neutral party, the judge, that ultimately the truth will be found. So you've worked as a public defender for a number of years. How has your experience with cases, with budgets, or with the general system evolved over time? When I first started practicing, there were far more violent crimes. Um, in, throughout the United States and in New York City um, in, the, in the last decade, violent crimes have been reduced substantially. Uh, but there's been an increase in the number of misdemeanor charges that are brought. And misdemeanors now carry much more severe penalties, not necessarily the penal penalties, uh, but the collateral consequences of those convictions. People are deported uh, who are here legally and have been here for many years, uh, can be deported because of their convictions. Uh, they can be not denied uh, government benefits. Like housing or health Housing. Care. They can be uh, ev evicted from public housing if they have certain convictions. They can be denied uh, food stamps under certain conditions. Educational loans can be denied if you have certain convictions. So that the impact of a misdemeanor conviction is, is far more serious than it was when I first started practicing. So in fact, when public defenders now have to spend more, now have to spend even more time on misdemeanors because the, the consequences are so severe. Why don't we talk a little bit about what it means to be a public defender? Are there certain other obligations or responsibilities that would be different from the normal practice of law? I, I think as a public defender, your clients um, have certain social issues uh, because of their, their, their backgrounds which you don't necessarily confront uh, in, in, a, in a regular practice of law. Um, so you need to be very, uh, you need to understand the client and what that background is uh, to, to work with the client. Uh, you need to be more sensitive to, that, to those issues. Um, they're sometimes not trusting because they feel that you work for the state um, and you're tied into the court. Um, so it may take a while for you to uh, gain their trust uh, because of the fact that generally people feel that when they're paying for something, it's more valuable than if, if they're getting it for free, and they don't know why, who's paying you or, or why you're doing this. So, so it, because it you're like, appointed by the court, there's an inherent suspicion there. Exactly. That's a burden that, it ha that the public defender has. And that's why it requires you know, even, even more time to consult with the client and, and, and talk to them about their cases, because you really need to spend a little extra time to gain their trust. So additional camera footage in society may allow for quicker resolutions of criminal cases. It, it, it could allow for quicker resolutions. Uh, there's also, um, you know, everybody has a cell phone now. Um, there are tweets, um, there are instant messages, there's email back and forth. We need to have the technology to download that information because oftentimes there'll be an allegation that they didn't know the individual or they had no relationship with the person uh, other than you know, very casual. And you can actually copy the messages that were sent by the complainant uh, to, to the client and, and demonstrate that what the, client, the witness was saying was inaccurate, was actually a lie. So you're talking about using new technologies, social media, uh, cell phone technology to help defend your clients. We are, and we need experts who can actually download that information because I certainly don't know how to do it, and, and, and most of my colleagues don't know how to do it. So we actually have, need people who are trained uh, and, and have the expertise to actually reproduce that information so that it can be presented to the court. So in your career as a public defender, are there any specific cases that stand out uh, as memorable or important? Many years ago, a client who was a, uh, 
an alcoholic and, and a drug addict who was charged with a robbery. Uh, fortunately, we were, we were able to get an acquittal. Um, and after spending many, you know, many months in jail awaiting the disposition of the case, uh, when he was released, he went into treatment, and ultimately he became a, a, a counselor in an alcohol program. Uh, and so I was always very grateful to have been able to assist him uh, because, you know, there, there's good in everyone. Um, and a lot of times people don't really think about that. This individual, he kept in touch with me afterwards. He sent me pictures of his kids. I always remembered him because this was somebody who, you know, but for the case that we had together, he probably would have spent 20 years in jail. In fact, I think that the offer to him was 20 years in jail, 10 to 20 years in jail. Um, and we were fortunate enough to, to have him acquitted so that he could uh, resume his life. He got married, had kids. Now, we've spoken a bit about the problems when it comes to defending the poor. We've talked about some of the solutions. Where do you see this actually going in the next few years? I think there's a, there's a recognition now uh, that there needs to be a greater focus on, ind on indigent defense. There have been a number of exonerations uh, in the past decade uh, which shed light on the fact that there needs to be more effective representation. And we, we really, as a country, don't want people to be going to jail without proper representation. I, I think it undermines everything that we stand for. So I think there are lots of states which are looking at indigent defense and looking at establishing commissions to set standards, to limit caseloads, uh, and to provide additional funding. There's been discussion about a, a federal agency uh, that will provide assistance to state, local, and territorial, as well as tribal governments in examining their systems and perhaps providing them with some technical expertise and maybe even some funding to uh, supplement the work that they're doing. So I'm hopeful that in the next decade, we will reach the stage where we can say we're approaching effective representation on a national level. I'm not confident that we're going to get there, but I'm hopeful that we'll make great strides towards improving the quality of representation throughout the country. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast. <laughs>